0: The Storycast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com stories. Over 180,000 titles to choose from, all on your mobile device. So support the show and enrich your mind at audibletrial.com stories. What does it really mean to own something, to define it, or to have it define us? How do we truly stake our claim? Because things can be broken and bartered and stolen. Possessions can burn and change hands when we die. Ownership of an idea is ethereal, ever-changing. Claiming something as your own is like laying claim to the sea, ever-tossing, churning, breaking, foaming and sinking once more, to surface again, half an ocean away. And such it is with the first day of May. For many throughout the ages, May Day was a spring festival, complete with dances and singing and cake. But for others, workers' rights advocates, socialists, communists, and anarchists alike, it's a different day entirely. On a micro level, May is nothing more than little green buds finally forcing out winter with the same strength of political tumultuousness. So whether union hauler or labor martyr, festival parade goer, or a cute little girl twirling ribbons ever so intricately around floral poles, humans across Europe and the Americas have celebrated this day for centuries, one way or another. But for others throughout history, speaking the idea of May Day is pure dread an SOS call declaring emergency a distress signal procedural phrase to be spoken 3 times by aviators and mariners to signal a life-threatening emergency a truly worst-case scenario a partial loan from the French venez Meday, literally come and help me the phrase mayday 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 was the 1923 brainchild from an early London area airport radio officer who was tasked with developing a distress call, distinguishably unique and readily understood by all, all across Europe. For calling mayday,
1: vessel in distress, this is United States coach on St. Petersburg, Florida, request your position, the nature of distress, and number of persons on board, over.
0: It was an unfortunate call, made on May 9, 1980, from the 600-foot bulk carrier vessel MV Summit Venture after its radar failed during a tight turn in a narrow channel during a thunderstorm. The freighter had struck a pier of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge of Tampa Bay, Florida. 1,400 feet of the steel bridge suddenly collapsed into Tampa Bay, sending six vehicles and a Greyhound bus into a free fall below. 35 people would die, and only one soul, Wesley McIntyre, would survive after his vehicle would slow its free fall by striking the deck of the freighter before it tumbled into the water, allowing him to escape the water unscathed and to find rescue. Mayday truly means both life and liberation. Destruction and disaster. This time in the Storycast, cast Mayday. Mayday. Mayday.
1: mayday. Bon, 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 bon. All citizens this is United St. Petersburg, Florida, silence is imposed on this frequency. They launch Mayday. If they launch Mayday. Silence is imposed on this frequency. This is the United States Coast Guard, St. Petersburg, Florida.
0: Chapter one, eight hours. So what do we know about May Day anyway? The earliest May Day celebrations would predate the Christian era with the festival of Flora, the Roman goddess of flowers, as similar celebrations of the dawning of a new season would be observed by Germanic and Gaelic and Nordic cultures all across Europe and Eurasia, and eventually into the Americas. Back in the Middle Ages in England, the May Queen, a young girl, would be chosen and crowned and paraded into town as an ode to growth and fertility. Folklore suggests that ancient pagan rituals completed this juvenile grandstanding with a sacrifice of said queen. And across the West, poles were danced concentrically around to be interlaced with colorful ribbons, and May baskets full of sweets and flowers would be left upon unsuspecting neighbors' doorsteps and lays hung around loved ones' necks in the Hawaiian Islands. So how then would the cheerful welcoming of May become a rallying cry for laborers and anarchists alike to demonstrate for workers' rights and launch assaults against capitalism? It all started one May in 1886 in the city of Chicago, and it all went down at Haymarket Square. And depending on your perspective or tendencies or political alignment, you might call it an affair or a rally, or a protest, or a riot, or a massacre, you be the judge. It all began that day as a peaceful gathering by and for workers on strike, fighting for the right to an eight-hour workday. But the affair really started following the Civil War and the ensuing depression of 1873 to 79, where the US saw manufacturing and production skyrocket to top off the Industrial Revolution. And Chicago was at the heart of it all, employing Americans and immigrants alike at $1.50 a day, which adjusts with inflation to about $37 a day in today's money. Workers and their families were living off of that sum and working six-day weeks at around 60 hours per week. The city had become a hub for labor rights organizing and demands for some time, not to mention pro and anti-union measures nor ethnic exploitation. There had been strikes and lockouts, union breakers and private security forces, thugs and spies. And all the while, the fat cats and the factory lords got richer, while those, of course, wearing the ashen blue collars grew more tattered and worn. And it wasn't just Chicago. Marches and strikes swelled to the norm across the populated areas. Milwaukee, Detroit, New York, and beyond. But workers' conditions right there in Chicago were so bad that there was actually an armed militia in town controlled by revolutionary anarchists sworn to fight against the system and the police. And this wasn't just some fringe group of gangbangers. It was a highly organized socialist movement with massive public support. It was also an ultra dry powder keg in a rugged underbelly pinned between everyday citizens with irreconcilable ideologies, just waiting for the spark. It was a Saturday that May 1st, 1886 and as the typical May Day celebrations took place all around the world, nearly a million organized American workers marched. They took to their streets and factory fronts and lumber yards, each with the same cry. Eight hour day with no cut in pay. The nationwide demonstration continued and two days later, the match would finally be struck at the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company, a plant in Chicago. An entire factory of striking workers Outside awaited yet another shift in of scab workers who were being protected by a garrison of 400 of Chicago's finest. When the workday bell sounded and large groups of increasingly hostile yet previously nonviolent strikers advanced to confront the replacement workers, the police opened fire on the picket line, killing between two and six strikers, depending on which newspaper's account you go by. The result was outrage claims of police violence, calls for retaliation of the murders. Anarchists and labor organizers called for what some call a rally and some call a mob in Haymarket Square, a busy commercial center at the corner of Randolph and Deplaine Street. Things began peacefully that evening under the dusk-lit skies, albeit under a light drizzle for whatever you want to call the event. Let's just call it a crowd of around 3,000. A cavalry of police officers observed from nearby laborists and socialists and activists spoke to the crowd for hours. It dragged on so long that reports have the crowd mostly dispersing due to boredom and bad weather. It was about 10:30 p.m. when English-born pastor and activist Samuel Fielden was concluding his speech, right when the gathering was sort of fizzling out, all of a sudden, Chicago police inspector John Bonfield led his forces to the speaker's wagon, marching in formation, backed by even more police force arriving in mass And as they advanced, he proclaimed, I command you, in the name of the law, to desist and you to disperse. And then the powder cake erupted, quite literally, as a homemade dynamite bomb was ignited and thrown into the path of the police. It would only be five minutes until the square would be cleared, despite the casualties, an eerie sight to be sure in the dark, damp night. But first, carnage. Metal fragments would explode from the blast and gunfire from both sides via anger and violence, which all led to confusion, as it so often does. In the aftermath, seven policemen would die from their wounds, some from friendly fire and the madness. More than 60 officers would be wounded. In all, four demonstrators would die, and between 50 and 70 of them would be wounded, many who would escape and find alternative medical aid for fear of being arrested after seeking out proper care. In the days to follow, there was public outcry, both on the part of police brutality and revolutionary terrorism. The alarmed community would view the bombing as a conspiracy by the rioting workers. Anti-union sentiments and an outpouring of funds raised for the families of police victims would be underscored by suspicion of immigrant labor neighborhoods and raids on homes and offices and arrests of suspected assailants. Police squads would shake down union halls and leftist publishers, labor groups and unions and factions of the press would regroup, seeking to rid themselves of any vestige of violence or connection to anarchists for their very self-preservation. Despite a lack of concrete evidence, eight men present at the Haymarket Affair would be arrested, tried, and convicted of criminal conspiracy. Seven of those men would be sentenced to death, and four of those men would soon be hanged One man would commit suicide in his cell. The others would eventually be pardoned nearly 20 years later. The entire event had a lasting effect and many within the labor movement itself viewed it as a setback to their fight for the eight-hour day. The movement to protect workers had been dealt a blow, yet the Labor Party of Chicago continued to grow strong in its resistance and fight for workers everywhere. And when the temperament settled down a year later, and then in 88, and then 89, the laborers and unionists and activists again marched, peacefully, for the establishment of the eight-hour day. And each year, the groups decided May 1st would be their birthday for the movement, when in 1890, the march was a common parade. And by 91, where that parade took place across the U.S., and Paris, and London, and two dozen other European cities and Cuba and Peru and Chile and Mexico until political theorists worldwide would view the Mayday fight for workers' rights as an international awakening of social consciousness. And so then, that nine-foot commemorative statue at Haymarket Square of a Chicago policeman with outstretched arms placed in 1889 and vandalized and bombed and rebuilt and destroyed again and moved and now reimagined as a monument that stands today, a speaker's wagon set with bronze plaque that reads, a decade of strife between labor and industry culminated here in a confrontation that resulted in the tragic death of both workers and policemen. The resultant trial of eight activists gained worldwide attention for the labor movement and initiated the tradition of May Day labor rallies in many cities. And in case you're wondering, The first nation to adopt the eight-hour workday was actually Soviet Russia in 1917. The Treaty of Versailles would mention the move to an eight-hour workday as World War I came to an end in 1919. And then, after advances in private trades in the press and the railroads, the 1937 Fair Labor Standards Act defined the 40-hour work week for many American industries as part of the New Deal and set standards for overtime pay and salary workers. And again in the 1980s, And then again in 2016, where new minimum salary thresholds for those working more than 40 hours per week were redefined. So it goes, as the movement, or the riot, or the strike, or the massacre, or whatever you call it, advanced forward, and still does. Because May Day, or not, maybe you worked an eight-hour day yesterday, or a nine-hour day today. Or maybe, just maybe, you're in the middle of a 12-hour day, right now. Chapter 2. Break Glass So, if you were facing down your own personal emergency, would you sound the alarm? Would you declare, Mayday? Oh, the fascinating, mysterious little places and moments where we discover life's not-so-little lessons. I once found myself having an epiphany of religious proportions in a nonchalant instant that involved a barbecue grill, a salty Maui breeze, and a pile of marinated meat. It all went down in August of 2015. It's the 15th day, tagging along on my wife's work trip to Hawaii, And yes, I'm lucky as sin to get to head to the islands once a year, while my better half who works in higher education visits local high schools to give presentations about choosing college to hopeful juniors and seniors, all while I hang out with my own junior, my one and a half year old son, and live my own pre-senior moment of basking in the sun all day. While Hawaii is obviously great no matter how you dice the poke, it's still a ton of work to be the primary care provider for a toddler while living out of suitcases, in and out of hotel rooms, and 90 degree sun-scorched beaches for a couple weeks on end. Hanging out day after day with someone you can just barely speak any English to forces you to retreat into an edifice of your soul deeper than your own thoughts. You find a place inside that makes you question who you were, are now, and will become. Here I am, at 33, seeing a miniature version of myself climbing across the couch Snatching miniature bites of Spam musubi and papaya, moments so insignificant yet important all the same. Spending so much time one-on-one with my son on this amazing speck of rock in the universe steers me to focus in on where, who, and how I'll be when he turns 13, 23, and 33 himself. Facing your own reflection upon the family tree makes you start to do the math. Being 33 is just that, 33. But being 33 with an almost two-year-old computes that I'll be nearly 50 when he graduates high school and 65 when he turns his own third year past 30. My place and time on a continuum is something I think about a lot and especially have on this trip. And as I so fortunately sit here on the lanai of my home away from home, Overlooking the finely sanded crashing shoreline of Kihei on the southwest end of Maui, I mull over the mundane cliché that life is really short. It's full of a bunch of noteworthy high notes and a few dull muckraking routines, yet life really is shorter than the sum of all its parts. So as I laze in my own haphazard existential existence in between diaper changes, nap intermissions, and sandy crevices, I grow in appreciation of both life in general, and the desire to take more pleasure in the tiny moments that make up this short existence. Enter Ed. It was an evening like any other here as a traveler in Hawaii. My wife had returned from a long, weary day of public speaking, so I headed out to the Timeshare Condo's community barbecue pit to singe some teriyaki beef. As I plopped dinner onto the flame, my introverted self sighed as this older guy approached the closely neighboring grill with his own raw meat of choice. He appeared to me a sad, frail man, who simply raised his eyebrows in a subtle acknowledgement of my presence. Great, he doesn't want to talk either, I thought. Where are y'all from? He uttered, finally, gazing into the distance. Now it's me who's the asshole for not having said hi. Seattle area I generalized. Another half minute went by as we flipped and seared in these awkward quarters. The man I would later learn to be named Ed expertly manned his dinner. Adorned in baggy tank top and khaki shorts, he looked to be around 75, as told by his sun-soaked skin, white hair, and feeble stance. He'd either been here quite a while in the sleepy coastside town or frequented places like this quite often. He had a quiet, yet sad grace about him. The gist of this tale is not in the details. I'll spare the insanely boring account of a quaintly humorous, yet lovably annoying guy as we made casual small talk. I would learn that he and his wife had retired, sold everything, and moved into this complex 16 years ago. As we grilled, Ed was full of stories about self-depredated, age-appropriated t-shirts from his grandkids and bumper stickers about retirement. Then the seemingly well-practiced foretelling of his golden years saga took a turn. He continued on to explain that he was once on the executive track toward being the CEO of a large company in Arizona. At the age of 56, he hit a turning point that caused him to give up everything material, his job, career, home, and belongings, and to relocate to a simple life here with his wife in this surfside, ho-hum beach bum strip he had once had a friend who also retired early in his mid fifties, sacrificing a ton of income and retirement earnings from working till the typical 63, 65, or even 70, or later, that some folks work these days until throwing in the towel. And it all started when his friend showed him some eerie financial paperwork from several other companies similar to his own. He didn't tell me his company, but compared it to GE and Caterpillar. At this point, I wasn't really sure where this odd overshare of a conversation was going, until this next bit. It was here that I discovered that Ed was trying to impart some wisdom. So he went on. My buddy asked me, Ed, how many hours a week did you work when you were 45? 40, 42, I said. Then he asked me, Ed, how about at 55? How many hours you worked then? Oh, 60, 70 maybe, I told him. Ed's point was that as he got closer to the big giant payday jobs at the pinnacle of his corporate spear, they worked him to death on the way to the top. That paired with the fact that once retired, over 50% of corporate professional types die within two to five years after a mid-60s retirement. And then for those eerie documents that Ed's friend keyed him in on, they intentionally outlined how executive board members of premier Fortune 500 companies we raking in 30 to 60 million dollars or more in bonuses each year from cash savings when those retired workers die at 65 or 70 versus paying out their anticipated retirement or severance until a typical death much later in life. So, Ed decided he didn't need to be the CEO. He didn't want a couple more million. He also turned his back on doubling his expected monthly retirement salary by waiting till his mid-60s. Ed bucked the system. He got out at 56 and lived. He decided to do it all in one day. He wrote a letter, hand-delivered it to his boss, and called his wife, who promptly hung up on him. But they sold everything and moved right here to Maui in a month's time. Many would say Ed simply gave up for a fear of what could happen. As for me, I say Ed multiplied instead of adding. He simply won. He beat the system, a system based on both corporate and personal greed that so badly infects everyone it comes into contact with like a vicious plague. Ed saw the writing on the wall, sounded the alarm and pulled the escape chute. As Ed removed his perfectly grilled chicken and I my slightly overcooked steaks, he left his parting shot Russell, don't work too much. They'll kill you. And you won't even know it until you're dead. Get out there and live. I spend every day standing in the ocean or floating on my outrigger. And some say that's a boring life. Well, it is. That's the point. It is. And off he marched to another dinner in paradise. I don't believe in angels. But if there were just one angel, it'd probably be Ed. He left as suddenly as he came, as if playing the role of a day-rate actor hired to succinctly impart that simple wisdom to me in those few minutes as I cooked dinner. Work to live, don't live to work. Some come to paradise for a little sun, beach, and fun. I came to Hawaii to babysit a small child and have some alone time with my own thoughts. Ed, Ed simply came to Hawaii to live. And if you listen to Ed, and I suggest you do, life really is as simple as that. Chapter 3. Save Our Ship All season long, and just for this season, we've been doing this musical chapter at the end of each show. And with just two episodes left until the summer off-season, we're finally creeping up on that 10-track album. This song, S.O.S., is the 8th track. And remember, if you want the whole album when it releases in June, just head over to support.storycastpodcast.com.
1: Three stiff fires To what they say. are all grounded It's time to be made But we will rise We'll crash the door From your
0: The StoryCast was written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. This week, you heard music from Hammock, Balmaria, Olifer Arnolds, E.B., The Album Leaf, Super Apparent, and myself. The StoryCast continues at the end of May with another chapter of life that tells the story of us through a common thread. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. Oh, and if you like the show, please leave us a quick review on iTunes. It helps us move up in the search rankings so more people can find this show. Thanks. The Storycast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to storycastpodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad, and we get a kickback on every order you make, every time. Simple as that. Thanks.